go together to the book of Philemon. And I refuse to pronounce it Philemon. So go to Philemon. It's in the New Testament, in case you're unfamiliar. First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Today, we continue our brief series called Gospel Fellowship. And my message today is entitled, Unexpected Blessings of Gospel Fellowship. Once upon a time, long time ago, there was a slave. And that slave got tired of his situation, and so he decided, against all odds, putting his own life in his hands, he decided to flee. Now, in his culture, to do that would mean almost certain death. He would be a fugitive from the law. He would have no protection under the law. And he would surely be punished, if not killed, when he would be caught. And the chances were very high he would be caught. So this man was desperate. And so he ran. Day and night, he fled. He fled on foot. He fled by boat. He ran for almost a month until he had reached 1,300 miles away. Just for contrast or or for connection there, that's like walking from Minnesota to Florida. He finds himself in a large metropolis. After all, more people, easier to disappear. But this slave was not able to disappear like he wanted. God had other plans. You see, this slave's name was Onesimus, and he was fleeing into the city of Rome where the apostle Paul happened to be in prison for preaching the gospel. Whether by coincidence or on purpose, Onesimus finds Paul, shares with him his story. Paul shares with Onesimus the saving message of the gospel and leads him to faith in Christ. Now, Paul knows Onesimus' master. In fact, he knows him intimately. The master's name is Philemon, who is a wealthy Christian in the city of Colossae. In fact, the church of Colossae met in Philemon's home. Philemon came to faith in Christ as a result of Paul's ministry. So see how all these connections intertwine. Again, whether it was coincidence from man's view or on purpose for Onesimus finding Paul, God is the one orchestrating all of these pieces. Well, there was a moment here where Paul has a really big problem on his hands. He's got a big choice now. He can either continue to hide this runaway slave, this fugitive from the law, And in the Roman society, full of authorities, it was not easy to hide anyone. Or he could send Onesimus back, which would mean severe punishment under Roman law. What would he do? Now, Paul, he's in prison, so there's not a lot he can do. He can't, like, walk him back home. So Paul does the only thing he can, and he writes a sincere letter to the master, to Philemon pleading for Onesimus not to be punished and not even to be received back as only a slave, but to be received back 
as a brother in the Lord, a new convert in Christ as a fellow Christian. Now, we see this letter being intensely personal. And if you've ever read this book or maybe even gotten into a discussion with some non-Christians who doubt the authority of God's word, one of the questions that will be raised is, especially in this letter, why didn't Paul take this opportunity to condemn all slavery? Well, the simple answer is that was not the purpose of this letter. The purpose of this letter was to reconcile two men who could have been divided and in conflict for the rest of their days. The purpose of this letter was to show the power of the gospel, not only to these two men, but as it is recorded in the canon of Scripture for all Christians, for all time to see and to rejoice, that we can see together that when Jesus transforms our hearts, he also transforms our relationships with one another. You can't have one without the other. To be transformed in Christ means we will have transformation in our relationships with one another. Jesus famously said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He was asked for one commandment and he gave two because they're connected. To love God is to love others. To know God in Christ is to know others in Christ not simply as who they used to be or who you used to be, but who we now are in Christ. That transformation is real. Now, this morning, we're not going to be able to unpack every verse in Philemon, but we're going to read it as a letter, as it was intended from beginning to end, only 25 verses, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's help. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother, especially to me, 
but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning. Thank you for this beautiful gospel example of the conflict between two men. And yet the conflict doesn't get the last word. Your grace does. Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that you would let your grace be evident to us today. Open up the truth of your word by the power of your spirit and change us afresh again and again so that we can give you glory again and again. In Jesus' name, amen. We know that through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven from our sin. But we can't forget that we're also saved into the church. So rescued from sin and saved into the church, the fellowship, where we get to enjoy gospel fellowship living out life together, sharing life together, rooted in the amazing freedom and forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Flawed people, loving God, being loved by God, loving other flawed people, worshiping Jesus together. That's what the fellowship of the body is. But we know also that it's not all a bed of roses, is it? Some pretty serious conflicts happen in churches and between Christians. And it's not just churches. Any, any group of people gets together for any length of time, you are going to have conflict. Whether that's a friendship, whether that's marriage, whether that's a church. If you never have real conflict, it may be, it may be that you don't have real relationship. Because real relationship requires risk. It requires trust. It requires being vulnerable with another person. It's when we go deeper, when we get beyond the surface platitudes and the the surface conversation and we really get into one another's hearts, when we get out of our comfort zone and we embrace the inconvenience of intimacy, well, that's where real love grows. And that's where real fellowship transforms us. Now, that doesn't prevent conflict, does it? But when conflict does happen, it's not destructive. It's just one more opportunity to see the power of the gospel bring reconciliation again and again. Now, 
As we know the background story of this letter, Paul is, is interceding. He's mediating between two people, two men that could quickly become divided. But more than that, the contribution that this gives us to the word of God and to God's church is we begin to see mixed in some beautiful, unexpected blessings that are meant for all of us to receive through gospel fellowship. And so it's three blessings of that kind that I'd like to point out this morning for us to think upon. First is this. Gospel fellowship refreshes the soul as we recognize God's goodness in one another. Isn't it telling that Paul doesn't start this letter just by laying into Philemon, by bringing correction and rebuke right off the bat? No, instead he, he takes time to recognize the evidences of God's grace at work in Philemon. We see in these first few verses, Paul giving thanks to God for Philemon's faith and love for Jesus and how that spills over into his love for the church and how amazing and and effective that is for all who know the man. I mean, think about it. There's a man's freedom at stake here. There's a man's very life at stake. And yet Paul sees it a priority to first recognize God at work in the person he's communicating with. I think that should inform us, church. Naturally, we see the negative first. That's our sinful tendency. We see the negative and we want to fix it, whether that's in a situation or in other people or even ourselves. That's easy. That's natural. What's supernatural is for us to be able to see past the negative and actually see God at work and to celebrate that together and to point it out, not just to notice from afar and say, wow, that's impressive, but to actually take the time to find that person and tell them so. That's what Paul is doing with Philemon. He's seeing God at work and he tells him so. And Paul, he's connecting that recognition of God's goodness and fruitful gospel fellowship, he's putting those two things together. Look at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, look at that phrase, the sharing of your faith. And in common Christianese, When we say sharing your faith, we usually mean evangelism, telling someone who's not a Christian about Jesus, sharing your faith. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That phrase, sharing your faith, is one word in Greek, koinonia, the fellowship, the gathering, the sharing of life together. So here's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, Philemon, By you sharing your life with the church, you are being a blessing to others, and others are allowed to be a blessing to you. The sharing of your life of faith, which is the core of gospel community, is a blessing both to the giver and to the receiver. It's important to see yourself in that light, Christian that you don't see yourself as simply someone who attends a Sunday gathering or a Bible study or a discipleship group to see what you can get out of it. 
or if the last few times you've gathered, you, you've assessed somehow that you're not getting anything out of it, so you kind of stop valuing that gathering. That's the wrong perspective. That's a consumer perspective. I go, I gather to get. No, we gather to give. Yes, there are beautiful blessings to receive, but how often have you found in your own Christian life most of the blessings you receive is by being a blessing to someone else? That when you give of the goodness of God that he's done in you and recognize it in others, there's just this beautiful feeding that takes place in our souls. There's there's this cycle that starts to happen. The more we spend time with each other and recognize God at work in each other, the more we're going to see or want to see that, the more we're going to want to be around each other. Now flip that coin. The more we're around each other, the more opportunity we're going to have to see God at work. It's a beautiful cycle that God intended. Now, as you're thinking about that, you might say right now, oh, time out, Scott. That's not my experience. The more time I spend with people, the more I notice their faults and failures and things that get on my nerves, the more I don't want to be around people. But can I tell you, that's not caused from being around people. That's caused from selfishness. We all face that. That's caused by putting self first. That's caused by going into a situation thinking about what do I like, what do I want, And even though we don't intend to, we start noticing other people as to how different they are from us, and we don't like what's different from us. And so therefore, putting self on the front end poisons opportunities for gospel fellowship. But reverse that. You're more aware of God's grace. You're aware of God's forgiveness, his love, how much he's forgiven you, how he's welcomed you into his family. How Jesus laid down his rights, his life for you. Now, with that thought, you go into a conversation. You go into a gathering. And where's your mind? It's going to be, how can I recognize what God has done in me? How can I recognize that in others? The lens of grace becomes clear. And we begin to give God glory through those interactions. Now, think about how God sees you. Think about how God knows everything bad you've ever done. I'm not going to ask you to think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life, even though when I just said that, it probably popped into your brain. But the worst thing you've ever done, the worst thing you've ever thought, or the worst thing you ever will do, God knows. Nothing's hidden from his sight. And yet, he loves you. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got our act together, not when we cleaned up, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God knows the worst about us and still loves us with an everlasting covenant-keeping love. When we recognize that, relish in that, what exudes from us will be the same, is we will be able to know someone, to know the worst about someone, and still love them. Not with something that comes from within us, but something that was given to us, that comes through us. Gospel fellowship rooted in this beautiful love Christ has given. Now look at, look at verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul's recognizing Philemon's love for the church, for Jesus 
and how that's just a source of what Paul calls refreshment. There's a connection there. It is, it is a rest connected to what has been completed. You are being refreshed. It's like coming to the end of a race and, and just drinking that cold water. That's the refreshment Paul's talking about. Philemon, your love for Jesus and your love for the church is like cold water to thirsty people. Keep it up. Because Paul knows what we know. The human condition is the same. We are surrounded by criticism 24-7. Whether we're receiving it or whether we're giving it. We are made more aware of what's wrong. We're made more aware of how much we fall short, of we We did another mistake. We didn't meet someone's expectations. We are constantly aware of the criticisms. And it's soul depleting. And it's crushing. If that's all we hear. But now imagine. Imagine when that person came to you that day and looked you in the eye. And they didn't bring more criticism. But they came and they said, can I just tell you, I see God at work in you. Can I just tell you what has blessed me? You said this. You did that. You encouraged me. You didn't even know I was watching, but but you were helping that other person, and you were doing such a selfless way about that. It made me stop and glorify Jesus. I see him at work in you. Now, what does that do to your heart? That's disarming, isn't it? It's humbling. It's refreshing. When someone cuts through the criticism and recognizes, I see Jesus at work in you. That's what's being modeled here as Paul is recognizing this in Philemon. And when we come together as God's people, whether that's on a Sunday morning or whether that's a a discipleship group or community group or, or maybe just coffee with another Christian, that kind of evidence of grace recognition is supposed to be refreshing to our souls. It's life giving seeing God at work in each other. In his book, The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ, Ray Ortland, I think, puts it masterfully. He says this, On Sunday, we walk into a new kind of community where we discover an environment of grace in Christ alone. It is so refreshing. Sinners like us can breathe again. It's as if God simply changes everyone's topic of conversation from what's wrong with us, which is plenty, to what's right with Christ, which is endless. What a blessing. The gospel fellowship that we get to have refreshes the soul as we recognize and celebrate God's goodness in one another. Second, the unexpected blessing that we see of gospel fellowship is that it encourages us with the constant reminder of our new identity in Christ. Now remember, Paul wrote from prison. Here's a man who has no physical freedom writing on behalf of another man who has no social freedom. How could, how could Paul do any good? He's just a prisoner, right? Paul didn't believe that for a second. And you see that coming through in the letter. Paul knew his circumstances did not define his identity. He was in prison, but that did not limit the power of the gospel. He could not physically go anywhere, but it wasn't about Paul anyway. It's about Jesus. It's about the work of the gospel going forth. And so Paul, 
knowing that he's still an apostle of the faith, that he's still a father in the gospel, a child of God, a follower of Jesus, writes with love and grace and authority, knowing that God is not bound. I think that's telling for us. Our circumstances do not create our identity. Who you once were, sins you once committed, even difficulties you face now, they do not define who you are if you're in Christ. Jesus is the one that identifies you as forgiven, as made new, new creations in Christ. And there's several beautiful evidences of that as we see here. Let me just show you a few. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Listen to that unity, that that fellowship in Christ, that Onesimus is not simply a slave. He's Paul's child in the faith. Paul is his father in the faith. So this is more than friendship, right? This This is family. Look at verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. A slave was valued by one thing, his work. His worth was explicitly tied up in his labor and nothing else. Now it's interesting to know the name Onesimus actually means useful. So Paul's using a little play on words here. Paul's saying, by, by him running away from you, your, your slave named useful may certainly seem useless to you now. But he's not. He's still useful to both of us, but in a much deeper way. He has been redeemed in Christ. And that redemption in Christ should affect his redemption to you, Philemon. Verse 12 Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. How often do you think a slave heard anybody describe him that way? You're my very heart. Probably never. But this this is the kind of love that transforms someone. This is the kind of love that comes from someone who has been transformed. Paul knew what transformation was about, and he was eager to share that with others. And then Paul tells Philemon, he's sending back Onesimus. Look at verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, that's a fancy word for slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Whether Onesimus stays in Philemon's household or not, their relationship is no longer defined as master and slave. From now on, they are brothers in the Lord. How beautiful that is for us to remember. I know it's for me, it's easy for me to take for granted, but let's help each other not to. That you and I, who are redeemed in Christ, we're not just acquaintances. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only people who gather, who get the blessing of gathering together on this earth once a week, but we have the promise we will be gathered together for eternity, uninterrupted in the presence of Jesus. The forever fellowship that we get a glimpse, we get a taste, we get an appetizer of right here. Because our identity has been changed in Christ, 
We have a new identity, a new family, the family of God. Can I just tell you the devil hates that? The world hates that? I mean, the evidence, especially right now, the evidence is clear. Look around in the culture. Look at how much division is being propped up. Look at how many categories are either being created or being pointed to to try to keep us all separated, to try to divide off into tribes and camps, whether that's by race or by politics or by vaccines or by masks or by your past or by what neighborhood you come from or what political candidate you support, all of those things, they're being set up to try to divide the culture. And even better, if they can divide the church. But here's the good news. None of those things are who you are. None of those things are who you are. You are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Who you used to be is not who you are anymore. Where you used to find your identity, you don't find it there anymore. Christ has redeemed you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who you are. Your value is no longer found in how useful you are to other people or what other people think about you. Your value and your worth are defined by the God who made you and the Savior who died for you and the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. So that all those categories that the world tries to place you in or that we're tempted to put ourselves in, all of those things lose their power. All of those things have to bow the knee to the identity of the new creation that you are in Christ. We were slaves, but we're not anymore. Not slaves to sin. We are glorious bondservants to Christ. Free in him. Friends of the Son, children of God. And when we get discouraged and when we get in conflict, how important is it to remember who we are in Christ so that we can remember who that other person is in Christ? And say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. This is not worth the conflict. What Christ has given to us, his love covering a multitude of sins, I want that to happen here. That doesn't mean we don't need to dig into problems and and help bring the gospel. But there are more times than not, the offenses we carry are not worth it. They're just not worth it in light of eternity. They're not worth it in light of the new identity and the grace we've been given. And the spirit that lives within us that empowers us to have those relationships. We have a new identity in Christ. Gospel fellowship encourages us with that constant reminder of that new identity, and we should rejoice in that. Third and finally, an unexpected blessing of gospel fellowship is that it displays our reconciliation with God through our reconciliation with one another. This squarely hits the heart of the gospel. This is the reminder that we were all once enemies of God, rebels and outcasts. That's why Jesus came, to reconcile us with the Father. Because of our sin, our relationship had been severed. 
Jesus came and reconciled us by paying for the sin that we had committed and by clothing us in his righteousness that we stand before God and we're seen as he sees Christ. And so therefore we get to love others with the same love we've been given. We get to forgive others with the same forgiveness we've been given. That our vertical relationship with him is seen in our horizontal relationship with one another. To love God is to love others. To love Christ is to love the bride of Christ, the church. But we know living out this life, that unity, that fellowship is going to be challenged. It's challenged almost daily through conflicts, through personal offenses, through hurts, through wounds. As long as we live in a broken world, we are going to face broken relationships. We just will. You can try to avoid the conflict, but eventually it's going to find you. Jesus never intends for us to try to avoid all conflict. Instead, he wants us to see the power of the gospel at work in our hearts and in our relationships and apply that gospel, to give that grace, to walk these things out in love, which will lead to continual reconciliation with each other. We have that one and done with Christ, right? Upon belief, upon conversion, we're justified. One and done, made right before God. We are reconciled with the Lord in Jesus and nothing can ever change that. But we're not yet perfected with each other. Those relationships will be strained at times. But it just gives us another opportunity to reconcile. It gives us another opportunity to say, Jesus, I need you. And the other person say, Jesus, I need you. And he brings the two of you together in that neediness and saying, Lord, we need you together. And beautiful gospel reconciliation takes place. That's what Paul is appealing to for Philemon and Onesimus. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it seems that Onesimus, when he fled, he likely took something of value that belonged to Philemon. Money, treasure, we don't know. But listen to what Paul says in verses 17 and 18. So if you, Philemon, consider me your partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul does not appeal to Roman law because according to Roman law, there was no ground for Onesimus to stand on. He appeals instead to the sacrificial love of Christ. He's saying, in essence, Philemon, your runaway slave has become my son in the faith and has now become your brother in Christ. Whatever he stole from you, whatever wrong he's done you, put it on me. I'll make it right. I'll pay his debt. Not to mention you owe me your very life. I'll take care of it so that you can be reconciled together, not as master and slave, but as brothers. Two sinners saved by grace, adopted into the family of God together. Can't you hear the very essence of the gospel being reflected in Paul's words? Can't you hear Paul inferring, pointing to the cross of Christ? How Jesus himself appeals to the Father on our behalf. Father, whatever wrongs they've committed, whatever debt they owe, put it on me. 
That's exactly what Jesus took on. Father, whatever they've done, take all of their sin and put it on me so that they can be reconciled to you, so that you will see them as you see me. Father, receive them as you receive me. You and I are the recipients of amazing grace. And that means we get to be the givers of amazing grace to each other. Nobody likes conflict, and if you do, something's wrong with you. But we're going to go through it. Can we not begin to see it instead of, of a burden? Can we see it as an opportunity? Oh, I get to be reconciled again. I get to recognize my own sin and own up to it. That's growing in sanctification. I get to offer forgiveness or I get to ask for forgiveness. There's the gospel at work because nobody has the right to withhold forgiveness. All the forgiveness that you will ever give in your entire lifetime will not be a drop in the bucket compared to the forgiveness you've received in Christ. And so we get to see that reconciliation over and over. Because we're reconciled with God, we can continually be reconciled with one another. Now, we don't know what happened to Onesimus and Philemon. The letter doesn't say, but we've got some clues. The very fact that this letter was preserved and was copied and was included in canon lets us know Philemon didn't destroy it in a huff. That gives us an indication he agreed with it and passed it on to the whole church, who then would have to hold him accountable if he wanted to do opposite. So the indication would be Philemon did exactly what Paul asked and set Onesimus free. And there's another indication, we're not sure, but there was a guy named Onesimus, could have been a different one, but a guy named Onesimus who became the bishop of Ephesus, just down the road from Colossae. Now, whatever happened in that story, what remains is a beautiful picture of the gospel in relationship, in fellowship, that defies all odds. You and I have that same grace, that same gospel, that same fellowship that we get to enjoy that we get to not only receive as a blessing, but that we get to be a blessing for one another in this life. So that as we gather on Sundays, as we gather in different groups, as we just come together and worship Jesus, that we're experiencing that foretaste, that joy, that appetizer for that beautiful day to come when there will be uninterrupted gospel fellowship with no sin perfect fellowship with Christ and one another. Let's start getting a taste of that now. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, how kind and how good you are to not save every blessing for heaven, but you pour out blessings on us right now. And one of the most beautiful blessings is we get to live out life with one another. That we belong to you and we belong to one another. Help us, cross of grace, to grow in the appreciation of that beauty. 
and in seeing the gospel reconcile us over and over for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.